Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we discover the prodigal tech bro with author Maria Farrell. But first, our wrap of the latest news with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. Let's kick off with the big high court decision of the past fortnight, which was that Google is, in the eyes of at least the Australian High Court, not a publisher. This is obviously the hoary old chestnut publisher or platform. This is a really juicy little story that the case actually emerges from a whole bunch of stories around Victorian underworld. I know you're close to that world being in Melbourne. Tell us what's gone on. Tell us what the law means and whether there's what, what we can draw from it. I'm just going to ignore that defamatory representation there that you just made about me, Peter. I'm, I'm not associated with the underworld. but uh, <laughs> We're a platform, not a publisher. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> so this case is about a lawyer called George Defteros who uh, did represent a number of underworld figures a long time ago when there was uh, underworld war going on in the city and he was charged by the police um, with conspiracy and incitement to murder some of these figures, including Carl Williams, who ultimately was murdered um, while he was in prison. And there was an article published in The Age online. Uh, it was found to be defamatory. Um, it was published many years ago in 2004. And then uh, the dispute occurred when Mr Defteros actually found this article online later. What had since happened was the police had dropped charges and uh, his argument was that that article that outlined some of the information associated with those events was defamatory. The age was not sued or it's possible, I'm not cl- entirely clear, It's not. I'm not sure it will ever be made clear, but it, it's possible they settled with Mr Defteros early on. But the article continued to appear, appear in search results associated with his name. So in 2016, he brought this to the attention of Google and said this is defamatory, it needs to be taken down. Google didn't do anything about it um, for a number of months and then eventually it was removed from the search results. The Victorian Supreme Court found that Google was a publisher and that it had defamed uh, Mr Defteros and awarded him $40,000. And then the case made its way all the way to the High Court and it, the decision was handed down this week. It's not as definitive as... Um, as I think anyone would like. I mean, Google is pleased with the result because a majority found that it was not, in fact, the publisher. But there is a lot of wiggle room in there. Um, And I think it's probably fair to say that a lot of lawyers are um, finding the tendency of the High Court to publish multiple judgments rather than clear um, unanimous judgments, for example, or single, single dissents to be a bit difficult because you then have to work out what what the case means. But the short of it is that Google was found to not be a publisher at all. So um, it didn't actually evoke the tort of defamation. You know, publication is the first first step in that process for for bringing a claim under defamation. Uh, And there's a lot of analogies in this. It's very unclear whether Google's a librarian, a newspaper salesman, telephone book, a tour guide or something altogether different. But ultimately, uh, the majority opinion found that the the search engine results produce a reference to something somewhere else through a hyperlink uh, and that that it was essentially accepted the arguments that Google put about it being a passive process where it indexes the results and then produces them in response to a search term. And as such, uh, it is not the what is generally considered the bilateral process of publication. Um, there's a lot more in it, and the dissents don't always accord with that view. Was there an argument, though, that if Google is monetizing the preference of a link, say on SEO or 
any other way they've found out a way of getting money out of advertisers. Has that changed the matrix? Yeah, well, this is where it starts to get really complicated, right? So what happens if it's an ad word, but also what happens if, you know, it's hard to describe Google's process as passive. Um, one of the dissenters, Michelle Gordon, who's a high court judge, she talked about the different processes that go into producing search engine results, that there's an indexing um, process, but then there's also a, a, an algorithm that's designed by humans, right, and can be altered by humans. So it's not a passive process in that sense. And there's a real question around whether um, if they're making a commercial benefit from relying on the supposedly high quality sources of news like somewhere like The Age, if they're, they're, they're a commercial entity and they're, they're providing links to those results. They're involved to some degree in the publication of them. And actually, Michelle Gordon made reference to the News Media Bargaining Code as an example of this, where she says, you know, there's a there's deals currently going on. I mean, she didn't say it like this, but um, in essence, there's a sense that, that links to newspaper articles are valuable because the News Media Bargaining Code is set up on that premise, which I think is interesting. I think there's a flip side to that. Do we want Google curating what articles we see um, and more involved and being perhaps more cautious about it being risk of being made a publisher and therefore subject to defamation laws? That adds another gatekeeper into the mix Mm. and one that's not transparent at all. So there's a flip side to that as well. I mean, it's obviously a commercial process. It's obviously a human process as well. Uh, But I reckon the court isn't quite clear on this. And I think we're going to have to see a lot more cases before we get to a clear position for other um, people who might be considering suing Google or search engines themselves who want to protect themselves from this kind of liability. Hey, Dan, as a real publisher, where do you sit on this? Dan, what do you think? Um, I'm mostly confused, but I, I think that's your status I, upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, like most topics that we discuss on this show, I'm mostly confused, but I think, uh, I think the high court has got this right. But the reason why I can't be sure about that is because like always, this really hinges on the technicalities of how Google search algorithm works, which is a secret. So it's hard to know for certain whether they are a, librarian or you know all the things that you said before Lizzie or 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 the the recommendation um of their algorithm played a substantial role in this I mean the comparison that's been drawn with this case which I think is relevant is the the Barilaro friendly Geordies one where Google was forced to pay I think about 700k to Barilaro for that but that was different to this case in two ways that are that are obvious in my view one, they paid Friendly Geordies to produce the content, not directly, but as a revenue share of the advertisements that that appeared around the content that he produced. So in that sense, I think they are a publisher. And YouTube's recommendation engine would have directly promoted the content, which was defamatory. And I don't think that's the case in this circumstance. But again, we can't be sure, can we? Because who knows how Google's algorithm works? We're going to talk about this a little bit later on in the, yeah, next, yeah. Uh, in the next thing. But um, it's hugely problematic. I don't know if we're going to see a solution to this until we see more transparency around how how Google works. Maria is an expert in Australian constitutional law. Uh, sorry, but on a broader thing, um, you know, we don't have a Section Two Hundred and Thirty in Australia, and the, the notion of um, you know platform neutrality has almost kind of been assumed into our system without ever being legally enforced. But how does this fit into some of the broader discussions that are going on globally about platform responsibility? Um, sure. Well. I suppose it comes from, you know, way back in the early 2000s, um, you had legislation in both the US and the European Union that tried to put in something called intermediary liability or basically take away intermediary liability. And so to treat websites and providers of, you know, web and internet services as simply what they called mere conduit. So, you know, basically the pipes that stuff goes through. 
and it was to try and protect um, internet service providers and websites and um, all sorts of you know organizations that were building the infrastructure from being liable for the content that goes in them. And so the the example was always made, well, you don't find the postal service liable for defamatory con- content in a postcard or a letter that somebody sends through it. But, you know, that was 20 years ago. And that was when, you know, mere conduit was literally just uh, bits going through pipes. And so now we have a completely different economic in- environment where we have a very small number of companies who have come to you know global dominance because they are, of course, um, you know, constantly putting putting their their hands into the into what's going through the pipes and sorting it out, and you know, surfacing some things and not surfacing others. So, to be fair, Google is an awful search engine. I mean, I personally don't use it because when you put in a search in Google, what comes up? A bunch of advertising content on the top, and you have to scroll and scroll and scroll to actually get decent, you know, what they call organic search results. So. Of course, they are, um, you know, manipulating the content that they're providing. So now I would say they, this kind of 20-year-old distinction between what used to be, you know, a platform or an intermediary that's not responsible for what's going through the pipes and what they then used to contrast that with, which is a newspaper, which is deciding editorially what to give people every day. Like that distinction is no longer there. So I'm sort of, you know, I worry about the consequences for smaller um, emerging and innovative competitors to Google if if we do away with intermediary liability. But I don't feel sorry for Google because they they made this by, you know, always putting their fingers on the scale or for Facebook. I mean, they are publishers. Of course they are. They're deciding constantly in a mix of machine and human interaction of what kind of content we're going to get. They're publishing content. There's no question in my mind. Well, the room is at the moment 57.43 in favour of a platform, but it's a pretty low sample. But if you want to add your views in there, please do. Um, we will move into Dan's chosen topic now. Dan, you're having a look, and it's kind of a, a little bit connected at the idea of um, algorithmic transparency. There was a story that Amy discovered coming through the Reuters wire um, around China's top internet watchdog um forcing um, a number of the the big tech companies, Tencent, Alibaba, to submit details of their algorithms. I it, it grabbed my attention because algorithmic transparency is something that we tend to push for when we're talking about um, the Australian context, but now it's happening in China. What's going on there and what should we think about it? Yeah, this is a fascinating story. Um, so, yeah, as you outlined, Peter, so the, the China's uh, Cyberspace Administration, uh, I think is the name of the, the governing body, um, they've published a list of 30 uh, firms uh, whose algorithms they're effectively auditing. And they're from some of the country's most popular apps. So this includes um, Alibaba's uh, Taobao, I think is how you pronounce it. Forgive me if I've got that wrong, but that's effectively China's version of eBay. Uh, Tencent's WeChat, which started as a messaging service and is is now, you know, a so-called super app and handles mobile payments and there's a social network and a bunch of other things. And ByteDance's uh, Douyin, again, I think that's how you pronounce it, but that's effectively um, ByteDance's version of TikTok uh, in China. Now, the reason that China has done this or the Chinese government has done this is because they recognise that these apps have essentially become central to our modern lives and therefore their algorithms are just too influential to uh, and important to remain a secret. Um, I mean, obviously, these apps influence what products you buy, uh, who you communicate with, and perhaps most importantly for the Chinese Communist Party, what information you see. I think state media in China has accused these internet platforms of, of invading users' privacy and influencing their choices, which I think they almost certainly are. And what's interesting here um, 
is that, as you've mentioned, Peter, this is close to what many of us have been calling for in Australia. So, I mean, Google's algorithms, as we just talked about, largely run the digital economy. Facebook's algorithms determine what news most of the population sees. And in the US, at least, not so much here yet, but I think it's coming. Our, our Amazon's algorithm determines what products people uh, what products people buy. So, this comes with all kinds of problems, obviously, because Google can preference their own products over competitors. Facebook can promote extreme content because all they care about is user engagement. And so, on the one hand. I'm supportive of this, um, but you don't have to think about it for long before you realise that it's probably worse for the Chinese population because China is obviously not a democracy and has a very troubling human rights record. So it's easy to see that China regards this uh, as more as just another tool to control their population more than anything else. I think a better approach uh, is starting to take form in Europe with the Digital Markets Act and Digital Services Act, um, both of which passed the European Parliament earlier this year. I think we spoke about it. So, look, there's a lot to both of these bills. I'll I'll spare you all the details. But what is most relevant here is the Digital Markets Act aims to stop the large digital platforms from imposing unfair conditions on businesses um, that they compete with, uh, such as ranking their own products and services higher than their their competitors. And the Digital Services Act aims to give people more control over what they see online and um, more control over whether their profile for digital advertising purposes. So, look, in Australia, we largely rely on the ACCC to enforce the Competition and Consumer Act, um, but I think it's becoming clear that we need specific legislation for these platforms because they're just getting more and more dominant. But, um, Lizzie, you're a lawyer. What do you think? I don't know. I think it's a really interesting question. Do you want to have full transparency or do you want to allow a greater marketplace for different kinds of um, players in ecosystem that gives a search and and the advertising that comes with it or the SEO that comes with it. Like I can see utility in having to have full transparency or at least having one product that offers full transparency as well in the marketplace, but there's no one rushing to do that because, you know, there's proprietary interest in keeping it secret. Um, I mean, I agree with regulation and auditing and the like, but it is difficult sometimes when regulators are kind of deliberately underfunded or under-resourced Um, to be able to properly audit some of these as well. So relying solely on, um, for at least in an Australian context, relying solely on the regulator to be um, the person responsible for making sure that the search tools that we use are doing what they say they will do, that the marketplace is fair or whatever it may be, um, can be not enough. Uh, And, you know, you can see regulatory capture, particularly in places like the US. And so I do... see see there being an interest in greater transparency so that people can assess this as well from their own perspective and make decisions too. But yeah, when China does it like that, you do sort of wonder what the state interest has in, in, in making these things, these things clear as well. Um, So, you know, like uh, on one level, I, I always return to this idea that, you know, consumers or users of these platforms should have rights and they should be enforceable. And uh, they should be these companies that that um, these large platforms should be liable if they breach those rights. But how you enforce that can be a real challenge. And having it distributed amongst regulators, but also private citizens, I think is probably that kind of mix is quite important. It's a Maria, it, it feels to me like algorithms are a phenomenon in search of a metaphor, just so we can understand what to do with them. And how do, how do you think about an algorithm as a starting point for thinking about where the regulation should fit in? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I love a good metaphor. Uh, I mean, I think... The thing about meta, I think by the time you're you're kind of looking at, oh, should we have accountability of this particular algorithm or you know of this particular company, you're so far down the line of um, algorithmic decision making 
um, that you, I, I sort of feel you need to come back, come back a few steps to, um, you know, how is it that the algorithm that we're, companies are using, black box algorithms, you know, Frank Pasquale's work is really good on that. Um, and we're not really, we, we're trying to figure out some way, like over a decade into this, how to get some kind of control over these things. Um, and, and I think, I think probably the thing to, I always try and keep in mind is algorithms are things that we use when we want to keep our hands clean, when we want to not take responsibility for a decision. So, you know, at the moment, um, Facebook has been, um, uh, everybody knows Facebook treats its online content moderators really, really horribly. They have terrible working conditions. They're employed by arm's length companies on terrible contracts. Well, now the latest thing is Accenture, the consulting company, has just fired a bunch of um, online content moderators and phoned them, basically made them all get on a group call and said, you're being sacked. Um, And they asked, why is my work bad? And Accenture just said, no, it's just the algorithm. That's why we're firing you. And so you kind of have, you know, a three lengths of remove from from Facebook and the people who are doing the work that's core to the platform. People are getting fired by algorithm. So I I guess when I'm thinking about algorithms um, and this particular Chinese case, it's um, we're sort of trying to shut the the barn door after the horse has left. You know, the, the algorithms have been used to step away from responsibility, to keep people's hands clean so that companies don't have to think about what they're doing or why they're doing. And very, very, very late in the day, we're now worried about, well, who is, um, what will happen if we try to get more control over the algorithms? When it's the other algorithms that have control over us? You know, I think that's the core question. Thanks, Maria. And, and according to our room, it's a lot um, closer to a public asset than private property. But as we've just discussed, probably a false binary anyway. And um different contexts and different degrees. But I'll move it on to the third issue that we want to have a kick around today, which I reckon is probably the ultimate in wearable technology, which is this amazing story coming through Mashable about Amazon using palm reading tech. So forget about, you know, smart clothes, just using your hand to go in and do the checkout um, linked to your bank account and they've been running this trial with Whole Foods um, leading to a whole lot of exceptional plans about the seamless shopping experience but then also a whole bunch of concerns including what happens when someone hacks your Amazon account you can reset your password but you can't really reset your your, your hand or your fingerprints um, and you know, just the creep into biometrics, but now as a new commercial model. So it's no longer about observing. It's about, you know, the human body being um, something that is being used as a, almost like part of your your, your, your daily toolkit. Um, one of the areas we've been talking quite a bit about facial recognition technology over the last few months. And the, the bit on the surveillance that I've also been fascinated around is this idea that your gait is a real distributor almost as much as your handprint. But it, I don't know, Lizzie, it just strikes me it is the price of convenience um, to not have to pull out your card and just show up your hand worth it for all the unintended risks and um, that, that could roll out of having a system that's based on just recognising your every move. Well, putting my cybernetics hat on there, Peter, I don't know if it's fair to describe this as a, a 
uh, tension between convenience and privacy. I, I, who's calling for this? Who wants to be able to pay for stuff with their palm? No one. This is Amazon pushing a certain kind of technology. But also on- doing it starting in Seattle, like the, you know, the <laughs> Portlandia. Yeah. I, I, well, the other one that might blow your mind that I read about is actually the, another biometric signifier is your typing style. Does anyone, has anyone heard this? So basically they can figure out, <laughs> yeah, I, I think they draw a few conclusions from you, Peter, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, they can figure out whether it's you based on, um, you know, typing. So even if you change computers, for example, they can know, potentially know it's you based on perhaps your location coupled with the, how you type, which I think is pretty frightening. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't think anybody thinks that this is better because it's more convenient. I don't, it, it's not more convenient to pay with your palm than it is to to use a, a card that you tap on a screen. It is, I think, an example of just tech frame or tech company framing this as a choice between or a, a move in favour of convenience, which actually serves a much larger purpose. I think it's awful. I, I, don't, I don't want to pay for anything with my palm and I don't think anyone should. <laughs> Dad, would you pay for things with your palm? Oh, look, this is just creepy and weird. Um, but I, I don't know if I agree with you, though, Lizzie. I, I, think, I think there are a lot of people that would, be quite happy to go down this path for just that little bit more convenience and not having to get their phone out of their pocket or their credit card out of their wallet. I, I just, I can see this being widely adopted. It's, it's the, and what concerns me about this is, so if you, if you take the, the comparison, I think is Apple, right? So we all used to, before um, Apple Pay came along, we all used to pay things for things, um, well, with money originally, but then with, with tap and go with our credit card, right? And then, um, I mean, I, I don't know about everyone else on, on this uh, show, but I, I mean, I don't, I barely even get my credit card out these days. I put my almost pay for everything with, with Apple Pay using my iPhone. And I think that's most, most people in Australia, or at least a growing proportion of them. And that gives Apple tremendous power, right? Like they, they obviously have a huge control over this sort of sector of the financial services um, industry. And uh, they also have the, and they earn fees from that, but they also collect a huge amount of data from that which as we talked about, they're using to grow their um, very disturbing uh, advertising business, which, which is small now, but growing at a really rapid clip. And I just see this as Amazon's perhaps foray into that. It's like, oh, well, let's see if we can get this technology widely adopted and then we're going to have a similar slice of the market. I mean, it's creepy and it's anti-competitive and it's weird and we should all run a mile in my view. It's also the wrong problem. Like, does anyone else ever kind of think, you know, we're solving this for like convenience over here, like the three seconds it takes you to take a card out of the back, you know, pocket of your trousers or whatever it is, or your your phone out of your pocket. Like, we're like three seconds are going to save over here and we're going to put all of this like human engineering and insight and ingenuity at this tiny non-problem that people in incredibly rich countries have. And then also in those same countries, um, we like people have lead in their water and, you know, cannot get an appendectomy if they need it. Like we're solving BS problems um, over here and throwing all of our human capability at them. Whereas we've actually got real problems literally like across the road from the, um, you know, from the shop that this is happening in. And we're not pointing our resources at that. I mean, I just think this whole like convenience, you know, hand wave, literally hand waving thing is, it's just, it's, it's constantly distracting us from the we are a species with massive, you know, extinction level problems. And we're worried about saving two seconds for rich people. In foods. I mean, that's nonsense. <laughs> Great segue into the second half of the show. Thanks, everyone. And according to the room, I might say nobody wants it. But then we're probably not the Amazon Palm crowd here, I reckon. So 
Let's take a breather. We're going to spend the second half of the hour really trying to tap your amazing brain, Maria. Um, I asked you last night how to describe you, and we don't want to call you a futurist. We're a, you're a writer, but you do write about the future, and you write about technology, and you wrote a very, I think, influential essay a couple of years ago that was called The Prodigal Tech Bro, um, which was about the way particularly the, the guys that had made their their money in the tech sector had had their come to Jesus moment. And I probably resonated. I didn't make any money in tech, but I feel it was very influential in the way that I saw everyone wants to come in and be a hero and solve tech and not always look at the, um, the work that's gone before them. And it's been very influential in the way that I've tried to go about my business. But do you want to just give people a bit of a, a rundown of the prodigal tech bro thesis? And then we can sort of go into some of your other, your other thinking. Sure, I'd love to. Thank you. Okay, so the Prodigal Tech Row is just a, a piece I wrote a couple of years ago, and it still it still comes back. I was um, I'm going to slightly be name drop you for a second. I was in Brussels a few months ago, um, queuing up for a meal at a, an event, and Cory Doctorow was in the queue behind me, and he tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Ah, oh, Maria, I just sent that article to somebody yesterday. It's completely how I think about this stuff now." So. Of course, that is delightful to hear because you want people to read your work and you want to think it's out in the world doing its thing. But I think um, it kind of points to why this story resonates with people is because it's about using a story that a lot of people know already to describe something and um, sort of a new-ish phenomenon um, and show it's that it's, you know, that we kind of understand this thing that's happening already. So, okay, the prodigal tech bro is basically about, um, so we kind of have to do the prodigal, the prodigal son, which is a, a biblical um, story. And it's about um, the young man who wants to cash in his inheritance early. He doesn't want to wait until um, his father dies. And so he goes to his father. He's, and he's, he's the kid who's, there are two, there are two sons. One of them works hard. One of them wants to party. The partying son um, gets all of his inheritance up front, um, leaves the farm, goes away, has a fantastic time, um, basically drinks it all and ends up in dire poverty. And is literally, um, his job is to feed pigs and he doesn't even have food for himself. He's eating the, pig, the pig's food. He's so hungry. And he's, he's kind of in a faraway land and thinking, God, like if I had stayed at home, I would be doing better than I am now. Um, I'm going to go back to my father's house and beg for forgiveness and beg to be taken on as a servant in my father's house because a I will be materially better off than literally stealing food from pigs, and b I have done a terrible thing and um, I made a horrible mistake and I need to own up to it and try and improve my situation. And so he goes home and his father throws a party for him, um, and the prodigal son is returned. And I think the sort of the um, what most people have taken from that story is completely incorrect. Most people take from that story the idea that you can do something terrible and come back and all will be restored. Um, and we've forgotten two really important parts of the story. One is that the guy hits rock bottom. He realizes he's done a terrible thing. And he confesses and he begs for forgiveness. And two, he does not get to have his inheritance again. So he comes back and he gets to be in his father's house, in father's house, but he does not get to be the person who has all of the riches that he did before. And so the reason 
I thought this is a good story to think about um, a lot of phenomenon which is, has been really common over the last few years um, is of somebody who has made a lot of money in tech and um, usually management level, not founders. And they have realized all too late that um, the tech, you know, the people you've seen doing this are being like head of user engagement at Instagram. The, the person who's literally hit their job is to, to make, you know, the teenage girls um, addicted to Instagram and be harming themselves and having eating disorders and all of that stuff. Like they come along and they say, I did a terrible thing. Uh, well, I was in this company and we were doing really good things, we thought. But it turned out really surprisingly to me that actually we did an awful lot of harm as a company. And so now I want to um, be in the space of um, saying tech companies should do better. And so I need all your attention and hopefully I would like to have some money so you can fund me in my new kind of think tank startup to say, here's, here's, how, we, here's how we fix tech. And so the prodigal tech bro story, maybe I'm taking too long to describe this. I'm not sure. It's, it's basically, it's sort of like applying this narrative, this old narrative to this new phenomenon, which is people who made a lot of money um, in organizations that did a lot of harm. And those people have now left those organizations. They've kept the money. But what they also want is the reputation. They want to keep, um, they want to sort of launder their reputations in a way um, I think probably not cynically. I think they're just people who probably need to go to therapy and face up to what they've done. But, um, you know, they want to have our sympathy, our understanding, and particularly our attention. And so if you're a person who's been in the space, in the sort of human rights space for a very long time, um, and you know a lot of people who, you know, did not, who, who had all of the technical chops maybe, but did not take the money because they could see there was a problem with these business models. And now... It's not just that, that they're sort of being shoved out of the way, but actually that um, that a lot of the attention and financial resources in that sector are being sucked up by people who already had all the attention, already had all the money, did not do the work, and are now coming into the space. That's annoying, but it's not the end of the world. You know, sometimes you've got to put your big big girl pants on and realize other people are going to come in and take the attention. That's okay. Um, the problem really with it is when these prodigal tech bros come into these spaces, they tend to be um, what I'm going to call politically very much the centrist dad. So they're people who are in the U.S. context are very much kind of moderate Republican, or sorry, moderate Democrats um, who are really wanting to say, look, we know tech has done harms, but we um, we think that it's basically a bunch of good people who are trying to do the right thing. And so let's not regulate them too hard. Let's just make it easier for them to do the right thing. And so when you can't get a lot of these prodigal tech bros into this space, they tend to be um, coming up with so-called solutions that are very, very watered down steps. They're not interested in changing the business model. Um, Safety by design and algorithmic models. So tech yeah, solving tweaking. tech. Yeah. yeah, a bit of tweaking here and there. A bit of like, let's all have a, um, let's all sit around the table and sort this out. Like, you know, like grownups. Um, a lot of, in Frances Haugen, um, who's a famous Facebook whistleblower, you know, a lot of her early statements were, were around, like, Mark, first name only. Mark wouldn't like this. Mark doesn't want the company to do, to do this. Mark's basically a good guy in a company that's gone wrong. And so, so the prodigal tech bro story, really what it tried to do was say, look, this is a phenomenon. It's not just one person or two, two people, but this is a phenomenon where you have these people coming into a space coming up with um, lots of kind of really weak solutionism and increasingly 
you see that um, those people's think tanks are actually supported by a lot of the Silicon Valley companies that they are supposed to be um, uh, reforming. So, so very much, you know, something that Julia Powell's in the um, Mindry Tech and Policy Lab for IMA, she basically calls it um, tech is supporting its weakest critics. So the, you know, the people who are coming up with nonsense solutions that aren't going to change anything fundamental, they're taking up. So now they've got, first of all, they had all the attention, then they had the financial resources, then they were populating all the policy agenda with their, to be fair, BS ideas. Um, and now they're actually the people who are being elevated by the tech firms as that guy. That guy's serious. You want to listen to him. He's not unhinged. He's not difficult. He's not, you know, a difficult woman or whatever. So again, so that's basically what the story is about. It's about like pay attention to who you're hearing from and why and why their voice is being elevated and kind of look at who was there for a long time and who is who maybe has not taken the money and the attention and the status goods. Yeah, that's kind of it really. Lizzie, you've known a few tech bros in your time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why this essay is so compelling is that this, well, it's it shows the power of storytelling because the storytelling around the tech bro that uh, that has realised his error and then wants to to um, fix it, it has proven so compelling in some mainstream media circles. And then here's an example of using a story to illustrate the problems with that narrative and and how we can turn it around because it was a frustration I felt watching these things happen as part of the tech clash but I, I couldn't articulate it as well as you did Maria so I think it it, it um, struck a chord with people for that reason because here's another way of understanding what seems like a novel situation but in fact has historical roots and which is a big part of my philosophy in terms of thinking about technology a lot of the novel problems that we're presented with have a context and historical lessons that we can draw on to help navigate them and um, this is something that I think a lot of tech pros would prefer we don't do. Um, one of the things I was going to ask you about, though, Maria, is it, it, uh, maybe I need to put my big girl pants on. I think that is probably some good advice. But, you know, I read the other day that Adam Newman, the guy who was the founder of WeWork, has just gotten a check from a major venture capitalist firm in Silicon Valley for $350 million to, quote, unquote, solve the housing problem in the US. It's hard to say with a straight face. I mean, this is a guy that um, basically created a fake company that, you know, was devalued pretty quickly by when, as soon as it was given a proper examination by auditors and, you know, kind of notoriously at bro. I'm sure people are familiar with him, but there's plenty of stories about the silliness that went on at his company and basically spending venture capitalist money, the excesses of Silicon Valley. He's kind of the epitome of that. He had a falling from grace, but he's now right back in it. And sometimes I do wonder whether, I mean, none of these tech pros appear to ever actually have to sleep with the pigs. That's one thing. But um, more generally, they appear to be just constantly on loop like it's as though um venture capitalists don't have any problem with carrying on this tradition of of supporting these people and how do you come to terms with watching this cycle continue um because it, it reminded me of what you're just talking about with the amazon palm stuff like these things carry on when there's real problems to be solved and we should be using our capacity to address and instead like the worst people in society keep getting funded to do silly things uh and it's considered innovation how do you come to how do you put on your big girl pants? Because I think I need some help doing that. Yeah. Um, I mean it, it's it's difficult and it's frustrating. Um, you know, and I will also say, um, there's, you know, this is gonna sound weird, but bear with me. There is um there is a vast amount of institutionalized misogyny in these environments. And a an extraordinary number of these people um, you know, are, are basically are sexual predators. I mean, it's it's a 
you know, there's, I mean, there's the latest revelations of the, the guy who paid his, his people 70,000 a year and was the best employer ever, you know, is, is, being, is up on rape charges and has been like a serial domestic abuser. So, and that is just, I mean, endemic in these spaces. Um, and I think it's really important to say that that is part of this because people kind of think, oh, it's just a, you know, it's a bunch of guys playing with their toys, getting money from other people. Like, where is a lot of the money coming from? I mean, a lot of it is coming from Bank. And, you know, a lot of it is coming from Saudi Arabia, from MBS. Like, this is, I mean, profound, like, institutionalized misogyny on a global scale. And just basically laundering money into nonsense projects that take our attention as a species away from what we need to do. So what I think Julia, who I, uh, is, is Julia Piles here, who's a really good, good friend and has got me over for a fellowship for the summer um, as a visiting fellow just to hang out. She, um, they're really interested in like, how do we reclaim how we imagine the future from these people? Um, because so much of our news cycle is about responding to some nonsense idea these people have come up with. You know, Elon Musk um, is going to buy uh, a football team. Really? No, he's not. He's just trying to, you know, take attention away from his litigation with Twitter. Um, so, you know, what we try and do is kind of think like, so much of how we think about the future has been taken over by, let's say, Meta, Facebook, um, you know, and this kind of really crappy version of a Neil Stevenson novel from the 90s, which was actually quite a good novel. Um, and so it's basically like we have to imagine our own futures and constantly be doing that and constantly be claiming our space, which is, um, you know, there are versions of the future that are not just capitalism redux. You know, there are versions mm. of the future in which... I wonder to the extent to which, though... Also, the tech bros are a product of the system of the global system of innovation around technology, which is all this build a mountain and then sell it like the whole VC model rather than organic, like the, the way things have been built in previous eras, which is with government working with civil society to build things from the ground up and whether you can see a connection between the two and how you actually resolve those differences. So there's one really important fact, and that is that interest rates have been low or borderline negative for almost 15 years. And so money has been crazy cheap um, and capital has been trying to find a place to 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 lodge so that it can, you know, um, kind of avoid so that it can grow. And so a lot of the VC model that you see in the Silicon Valley model has come out of the idea that there's just huge amounts of capital sloshing around and needs to find somewhere to go. And over the last year or so, as interest rates have been climbing, um, slowly but you know inexorably um, and inflation has been increasing obviously with the oil crisis and supply chain crisis and COVID there's been a sense that that kind of silly money will stop um, so I think the whole Adam Newman thing is, is striking you know and that um, these people are against all economic sense against the laws of you know basic arithmetic are still investing in Adam Newman a person who can turn 22 billion dollars of investment into four billion dollars of market value <laughs> it's astonishing so so yeah there's a lot it's, there's i think you also have to look at what is the intellectual cultural environment around silicon valley and it is clearly a deeply um, american libertarian frankly quite odd view of the world um, and so it's very much you know beholden to the idea that we we build solutions to problems um, using capital and using markets. And the only problems that have solutions are ones that we can marketize. It's just a really odd and very um, 
I mean, it's just really bizarre if you kind of try and go, you know, step back from it. And, like these people are genuinely strange. They just happen to have a huge amount of money. It's self, what would you say? It's self um, self-fulfilling. At a certain point, there are so many of them, they've got so much money. I'm curious about what you think. I mean, do you think this can go on as as you know interest rates rise and you know, we thought interest rates were going to bring um, some kind of financial discipline to this sort of activity? Yeah, Dan, do you want to weigh in? I don't think either you or I are nearly successful enough to fit into Maria's tech bro category. So you're safe to to join this conversation. Uh, although I did, when I read your essay a couple of years ago, Maria, it did it did cut a little close to the bone for me because as someone who's worked in digital advertising for 20 years and um, probably realised way too late the harm that um, that can come from the industry. Um, the question I wanted to ask for you, I mean, I, I think I broadly agree with your thesis though, by the way. I think it's 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 been it's been frustrating to see the attention that's been given to people like Tristan Harris um, over um, other people that have been calling out these problems for much longer. Um, Lizzie's a good example of this on, on today's, um, in today's forum. But, but there is some good that I think that has come out of it. And if nothing else, just from the consumer awareness that's come from um, things like, for example, the social dilemma, which went on Netflix, which was a pretty kind of, pedestrian show for anyone that actually has been paying attention for the last however long but for the for the vast majority of people that haven't been paying attention it did cause a lot of people to wake up I I can speak from my own circle of friends who don't care about this stuff but all of a sudden started caring about social media and what the kids were doing in a way that they weren't before having watched that show would you acknowledge that there is at least some benefit that that has come from from this uh these high profile kind of um born again tech bros Man, honestly, no. Like, I, I just, like, Social Dilemma was a film that was made by Tristan Harris, tech's weakest critic, um, you know, funded by Silicon Valley, a former, um, I think, is he former Google, former Facebook, one of those, um, and massively hyped by Netflix. So basically, you've got a person who has jumped from one big platform to another, um, is, you know, is in Stanford with a think tank that's well-funded by a bunch of ex-tech people. Um, and that has made a film that is now that was pushed massively by another platform. And that film is all about um, a, basically it, I, I remember watching the film and I was something like 37 minutes into it before I saw a woman of color and she was on for approximately 90 seconds. And it's all about centering the white guys who built the horrible state of affairs that we're in and and um, and and saying, you know, oh, woe is me. I worked for Instagram. I now have to go home and make love to my pile of money because um, it turns out everybody doesn't love me. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I know that sounds a bit cynical, but like take away the no. cynicism and look at the platforms, look at the money. Where is the money going? You know, but Mary, I, I think I, I would agree with all of that, by the way. I, I think that there are so many problems with that particular show and how it was okay, promoted let me for, ask you for this. all the reasons. Of your friends, of your friends that saw that, yeah. Um, and said, oh, my God, this is a terrible problem. Um, I never knew how bad this all was beforehand. Hmm. What did they then do? About- well, I, I can speak on a couple of cases where they were previously pretty relaxed about their children's use of social media and massively reined it in. So, you know, I, I saw I've seen a tangible benefit there, by the way, not not conversations that we had been having for some years where I was ineffective at getting them to do that previously, for whatever reason, that show cut through and uh, for a lot of people for the first time. So I, I, I acknowledge the shortcomings of the show, but I just think that the the fact that uh, 
because of the profile of these people, I guess, because of the um, the prodigal son nature of some of them, it has meant that they there's been some good that's come of it, if you like. I, I think while acknowledging all of the downsides that you've just mentioned, which I completely agree with, I also so, but think... Basically, what you're telling me is some people mm. who are reasonably, you know, reasonably well-informed already and change their individual personal behaviour. So there are no consequences for Facebook from this. There are no consequences for Instagram. And every single of that film spent seven minutes at the end talking about what should we now do about this. There were no policy or regulatory interventions as a result of that film. That film yeah, and believe me, Marie, we've talked about... We've, we've talked about these feelings and then shut down all the solutions to, you know what, maybe you should use let, Let's let, Let's not give the social dilemma any more focus than <laughs> we've given it because we did want to also talk about your framing around a duty of hope. And I know that Lizzie wanted to sort of just roll into that a little bit, Maria. So um, do you want to sort of set it up, Lizzie? Yeah, like, I, I mean, look, I don't want to talk about the social dilemma anymore because I agree it's occupied too much of our time. But one of the, uh, I guess, the frustrating things is I think there was a consequence of that film, which is that it aims to control the regulatory impulse that we have seen in response to the massive problems that many have been bringing attention to in relation to social media platforms. And, like, I'm a big believer in being an optimist, you know, or a Gramscian kind of pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I want to see change and I think it's possible and, in fact, I think it's necessary because, you know, particularly with technology, I think the only way that we're going to be able to successfully challenge or tackle some of the worst problems we're facing now is using, you know, some of the greatest inventions of the 20th century, the internet, networked computing generally. I guess the question is, you know, what? tell us about what you think or why you think this idea of a genie of hope is important and what it looks like in day-to-day terms, um, how you can put it into action, I guess, because uh, I think that's the other really important concept that you brought to the fore as a writer and, and storyteller. Oh, cheers. Yeah. I'm sorry, Dan. I'm sorry for picking on you there. Um, yeah. Valid point, Maria. It's fine. No worries. So I guess, yeah, the genie of hope, I mean, it actually comes, I think it comes in quite well into this in that if you, um, you know, and Gramsci is a great, great um sort of person to think with this stuff about I mean you know what he talked about most about was the concept of hegemony the idea that um uh, there are certain structures um of ideas that exist you know and that are manifest throughout our economy or society or politics the state and power and that they are so ubiquitous um, and all encompassing and that we're part of them and they're part of us that you cannot you cannot kind of step away from them and, and affect change and um and I think the duty of hope is important because it's 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 kind of this idea, I guess, and I'm not the first person to talk about it, but it's it's basically the idea that says you need to look at what is happening and not flinch and absolutely take it in and understand you know, what we're up against here um, in terms of the particular metastasizing form of capitalism that is manifesting in these in these companies and the way they have shut down so many. Um, you know, they've taken over entire spaces They've shut down um, other kind of um, their their own competition. They've literally colonized the future. Like they they claim to own how we think about the future and how we can imagine it. And you sort of have to stare that in the face. And then there's the step. So and the and the next step isn't the and therefore I will do mindfulness and I will hope for the best. You know, or I will be kind to other people. And um, it's the the bit that says you have to look at things for as they are and then go okay. Well, we're going to have to work on this. And we're going to have to work on, you know, how do we change laws? How do we change politics? Um, how do we um, try and do ethical behaviour within, within an unethical system? But realising that, you know, me using less Instagram is not going to fix this problem. And it's basically 
So the duty of hope is really about looking at what we are dealing with across a bunch of crises, you know, which we all can think about what they are um, and say we have to keep on working about them, working on them. And it comes a bit from the peace process in Northern Ireland, where a bunch of the, you know, a lot of the Irish civil servants who, who kind of worked on that over time. And really, you know, they, they faced impossible odds, all of them. Um, and they just had to keep doing their job on negotiating peace with people who would look you in the eye and, you know, put a bomb under your car after, you know, as you're mm. going home and basically work as if it was going to work out. Just you have to keep doing the work. And I think the duty of hope is, is about, and they would talk to each other about the duty of hope. It's like, even if we know against, you know, all the odds are that we're not going to win. Like, this is not going to end the way we want it to end. Um, and, and if it does, we're not going to be around to see it. But it's, the duty of hope is about decentering yourself and saying, we just have to do our bit to pass the ball forward. So to, so to stretch that a bit, Maria, who is sitting around the peace table with our challenge with tech at the moment in your mind? Like it's not as simple as two warring parties over a homeland. This is who huh. at the moment. I wish the Irish peace process had only been two simple. I know, sorry, the guy that said that was simple. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, there was at least four, um, yeah. say six or seven. Um, but, you know, all, all peace processes have multi um, multifactorial kind of um, process. But is that the frame? Is it a is it a moment of of seeking a peace? Because that 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 actually concedes there's been a war and one side's won. Or how how what again? I don't know if I'm asking you to be my metaphor factory today. But what what metaphor should we be looking forward to thinking about a more um, hopeful way of approaching the tech future? Um, I think. Sometimes I know this isn't what you're really getting at, but I think often when people are asking that question, they're basically saying, how can we manage our own feelings while living in a world um, where there, there is not, you know, if we're rational about this, there is not a lot of hope. And there are, you know, I can count, I can count on my fingers and toes, the people I know around the world who are, you know, in positions and doing work and really trying to change how we think about tech. I mean, it's really, it's about probably a dozen, two dozen people. And I think a lot of when people ask this question, it's like, how do I feel better about this? How do I live with myself? How do I manage my emotions on a day-to-day basis? Knowing that we're probably, that we're, we're facing impossible odds. And I don't want to be depressing for people, but I basically, this isn't about tactics and it's not about feelings. Um, it's basically about um, how do we look at these structures and change the structures, knowing we're probably not going to succeed, but trying to open up the possibilities for other people. Who are going to come after us? I also say I'll that the other question. Thing, I think sorry. that's really lame. I'm not getting it. No, this no, way. I think that's a good answer because the other thing is, being an activist, I think you've got to get accustomed to failure, right? But not in the sense that it's actually that 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 is necessarily the ultimate outcome. Like no one's going to hand you a victory on a plate, or it's very rare that that happens. So you've got to learn to come to terms with significant failures, perhaps before you have a success, or cumulative success over time that others take credit for, but that you've had a role in producing and learning how to recognize the utility of uh, being hopeful and putting that into practice in the work that you do is a way to sustain yourself and understand that you're having an impact even if it doesn't feel like it in the immediate short term I mean 
yeah, I think it's always, um, there's a lot of people who get involved in activist movements of all stripes expecting there to be success when I think that success is a much more difficult concept and it's much less familiar for activists, but it doesn't mean that failure is is the same as nihilism or or, or that it cannot, it, failure can sometimes be success in, in, in different oh. formats, you know. So that's the other thing I think, like how do you learn to be an activist and sustain yourself when you're fighting immense power and how do you learn to become comfortable with failure and understand mm-hmm. the longer-term timeline or the, the arc of, of history, I suppose, shall we say. You, you really yeah. should write a book on um, the, histo- the history of struggles, Lizzie. Good <laughs> Sorry, idea. Maria. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, we've only got a couple of minutes. Do you just want to round us out with what you are doing in Australia? Yeah, sure. I'm um, basically on a visiting fellowship. I've, I've uh, got a staying staying here for a couple of months and um, working on a book proposal and um, giving I gave a sort of a, a performance last week of a long short story I have called Burning Men, um, which is basically about um, uh, what it would be like. It's basically imagining a very near future in which sexual violence becomes all but impossible. So what would it be like to live in a world without rape? And um, the reason I write a story like that is because I think a lot of what we're doing in terms of imagining the future is trying to say, like, look, there's this stuff going on around us now that is just egregious. And but that is not normal. Like, it's not normal that sexual violence pervades, you know, nine out of 10 decisions I'm going to make today about where I walk and what I do and who I talk to. And, you know, the fact that I never ever ever mention on twitter the name of the cafe i go to or anything like that so um so it basically the storytelling about the future is all about like how do we imagine different futures by looking at stuff that is in the present and going that's not inevitable like these choices that we're making collectively be it about tech platforms and monopoly and abuse or be it about you know politics these are not the law of physics these are collective choices we're making and we can make them differently Excellent. Hey, and have a great time while you're out here, I'm sure. Um, oh, I have fallen I, in love with Western Australia. I'm sorry about everybody living everywhere else. I think yes. this is genuinely, this is the most controversial thing I'm going to say in this podcast today, but I think Western Australia is definitely the best bit. Well, I reckon you've got one supporter over there. Dan, <laughs> anything on your agenda for the next week? And we'll go to Lizzie before we round it out. Before we do that, I should say our really good friends, um, Ed Santo and Nick Davis at the UTS, um, Sent Human Technology Institute are having their first public event on September 1 in conversation with Alondra Nelson, Head of White House Offices, Science and Tech Policy. So I'm going to put that in the chat. I think everyone's welcome to register to be part of that. But um, Lizzie, Dan, anything else for the next fortnight? Uh, one big thing for me, uh, a lot of people on this call hopefully will start to see a whole bunch of Guardian headlines being distributed to uh, train stations and billboards around the country, including in Perth, uh, Maria. Um, so uh, hopefully that um, will get a few, a bit of our journalism out to a few more people to know about us now. So that's uh, that's kicking off next week. Great. Lizzie? Uh, we will eventually be launching our report on rebalancing the internet economy. You should get a, um, an email from us pretty soon talking about that. So keep an eye on your inbox. Do we want to do a, a special issue on that at some stage? Like when it's Love to, to go, love right, to. Let's, let's rock and roll. Um, thanks for your time. Thanks, Maria, for your generosity and being part of it today. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live at a virtual town hall on August 19. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal Rat by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.